0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, and it reads, for as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let us hear and contemplate these words and be blessed in the ways they motivate and touch our lives. So unlike most of Paul's letters, which were written to the early house churches or to individuals who were involved in Paul's missions, Romans is more of a lengthy theological guide for Jews and Gentiles who became early Christ followers in one of the most dangerous places at that time to be a Christian, the center of the Roman Empire. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans while he was in Corinth, Greece, around 20 years after Jesus' death, in anticipation of visiting Rome. And one of the things that he's trying to do is to help this new church, this burgeoning community, see what it means to be a community in Christ. He's explaining that when we are in community, we should think of ourselves As all together, one body. And as individuals, we are, as he says, members of one another. We are inextricably connected to each other. So that's a foundational concept. But he goes on to say that each of us has our own calling in this one body. My energy, my acts, my words. My presence, they all impact you and yours impact me because we are one. We cannot and we do not operate independently of one another. We have a long tradition in this country of individualism, which I love. It's led to great innovation and creativity but sometimes it's at the expense of caring for one another and entering into what I call non-transactional, that is truly communal, relationships. And by that, I mean relationships where the relationship itself is the end goal. It's not a means to some other goal. Our relationship and our relationships with one another, as Paul describes in Romans, are necessary for the vitality of this one body of humanity. And the more we pursue our individual interests at the expense of our higher calling to serve and feed the one body, we fail as a species. I'm looking out at Jamie Flink, who I didn't think I was going to say anything about it because I didn't know he was going to be here, but I think of Jamie as someone who I will talk about in concept, as somebody who is serving a higher obligation, a young man who has decided that he's going to West Point. He's serving a duty. Now my assignment today from Paul Whitmore was to preach on why in God's name I'm leaving Cravath to go to Yale Divinity School. This isn't easy. There's still a great deal of mystery in this for me. I can't say exactly why I've diverted from the ordinary path of a Cravath partner to do this. And I can't give some coherent and profound life narrative that may satisfy someone or that somebody might be able to relate to. It's a strange thing how... Sometimes you feel a call that's so powerful, it's so compelling, and you can't put it into a coherent narrative. But sometimes the only way to figure it out, the only way to know the why of the call, is to get to where you're called to go. So I'm okay with knowing that this is where I'm supposed to be without having a clear answer to why. I'm a lawyer without an answer. (laughs) Imagine that. But I'll do my best to at least talk about the things that landed me in Divinity School and hopefully they're more sort of broadly applicable to how we view life and I hope that you find them relevant as well. The truth of this, I believe, is something that's far more profound than what I could possibly put into words. And it has nothing to do with me, as an individual. It has to do with being blessed with observations about the world, becoming liberated, and having opportunity. But perhaps the most powerful force underlying this is you. Literally, the loving people here at my church. There is deep truth in this community. Coincidentally, Philip earlier was repeating the word community when he was talking about the children's choir. You have an impact in ways that you can't even imagine. Now, while I may not know the why, I am confident of the why not. That is why I did not go to divinity school. So let me get that out of the way first, just in case some of these things are kind of going through your head. First, I did not have a personal encounter with Jesus or some other conventional mystical experience uh, that made God's love tangible to me or call me to serve God. I used to actually think that that was a prerequisite to going to divinity school. That didn't happen to me. Second, I didn't think that this would be a relaxing way to spend my retirement years. <laughs> and third, this may sound funny, but it's, it's, it's true. I did not really relish the notion of hanging out with a bunch of 25-year-olds who made me very self-conscious about my white privilege. There's an entirely new vocabulary about social issues that I'm learning. Julie gave me a primer before I went on the words I was supposed to use and how I was supposed to announce my preferred gender pronouns when I introduced myself. You know, and this is a good thing. I'm not ridiculing. This is a good thing. It's important to operating in this space that we understand how younger people are thinking about the world and social issues and words because words matter. Okay, I've gotten that out of the way. Let me try to say what I can about why and how this happened and and relate that to this notion of community. So this is a life progression. It's an evolution. It's one continuous journey. Some people have said, this is a new journey for you. And I've said, no, it's not a new journey. It's one life adventure. It's meant to be lived out in unpredictable ways while trying to be keenly tuned into when you're called and where you're called to be, even if you can't map that out into the future. Andrew Malkin, who couldn't be with us this morning, he sent me an article from the current issue of The New Yorker, and it's called, Are You the Same Person You Used to Be? And in the article, the author compares human beings to storm systems where each individual storm has its own particular set of traits, but its future depends on a multitude of elements that are outside of itself. Atmosphere and landscape, topography and geography, external factors outside of the storm itself. So that the fate of a hurricane is shaped by the air pressure in another locale. And it's shaped by the amount of time the hurricane spends out at sea, picking up moisture before making landfall. Its path and its strength and its composition at any given time over the life of the hurricane are profoundly affected by so many things that are external to the hurricane. Forces the hurricane can't control. The author writes, Quote, storms are shaped by the world and by other storms. And only an egomaniacal weather system believes in its absolute and unchanging individuality. So this is an excellent metaphor. When I try to answer Paul Whitmore's question, I keep coming back not to what is foundationally inside me, but rather like the hurricane what I've seen, what I've absorbed, how I've been shaped by community and other human beings. What through no intentionality of mine, just by being in this world with others, has molded my views of my role in this one body or community of human beings of which I just happen to be a part. And when I say community, I mean it in the traditional sense of a group of people, bound in common purpose, but also community simply in the ways that we commune one-on-one with each other. When we function together as many members of one body, as St. Paul says, each with a different purpose. Community comes in many forms, connection with one another, taking part in a broader group of people, understanding our relationship with all of humanity, and ultimately internalizing our place as one with all of creation. So this push to YDS began in earnest with seeing what I can describe only as the work of God or the presence of God in unexpected places. But for me, always in the community of people. A lot of people have had the same experiences that I've had, but they've chosen not to see the presence of God because they've defined God in some way that requires them to see a human-like figure or some unusual presence in order for them to accept the presence of God. They've sort of set up the definition of God or their view or expectation of what God is so that they're never able to see God's presence. They've rigged the game, so to speak, so that it'll never happen for them. There's some will, and there's some thought that needs to go into it to see God. For me, seeing God was about opening myself to a concept of God that could never be confined to human language and definition. It was about broadening my perspective to the view that the more we open our minds to what exists outside of us, what is not measurable by science and mathematics, love and beauty, morality and ethics, kindness, bliss, community, the more and more and more I could experience where God manifests in human life, even if I couldn't see God in a way that I could ever adequately describe in words. I've said this before when I've been up here, but I mean, how do you describe the experience of beauty in the compositions of Mozart? Or the improvisation of John Coltrane? Or whatever moves you musically? How do you describe the experience of a sunset? The experience of holding a dearly loved spouse or child? The miraculous athletic feats of Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, Aaron Judge. (laughs) You can try to put those experiences into words, but those words will never capture the experience itself. I began noticing things that human beings just did for one another. For example, a community member suffers. There's a tragic loss. And what happens? For no self-serving reason, community members are drawn to the scene to provide food, support, presence. Why? Why do busy commuters on Metro North stop what they're doing to help a non-English speaking rider figure out where her station is? Why do we care for one another without any personal interest? Why are we drawn to one another in unusual ways? Some of you may be cynics. The cynic will tell you it's an evolutionary survival trait that we developed so that we'll be helped when we're in need ourselves. The cynic will always find the reductionist answer. Stanley Hauerwas, who's a theologian from Duke Divinity School, writes that cynicism is the, quote, rigorous and disciplined attempt to investigate the self-interest behind every moral claim. And that so many today rely on cynicism to sustain themselves because it helps us to avoid the loss of self by denying overriding loyalty to any cause or community. He says, in that process, we lose the very soil crucial to the growth of virtue The self-esteem cultivated by the sense of sharing a worthy adventure. I chose to begin to see the beauty and love and human attraction for one another and the human sense of obligation to be with another in pain or loss as the presence of God itself. And the most apparent place where I saw the presence of God was in the prisons. That may seem like an unusual place to see God in the dark and brutal and cruel existence of a prison. I've talked a little bit about this before, but a group of young Kravath associates and I have been working with victims of domestic violence who have killed their abusers and are now serving life sentences in prison. Why would we do that? Why would anybody set aside a whole day to go back and forth to Bedford, New York, where the maximum security women's prison is, spend an hour or more clearing security, dealing with whatever arbitrary rules some officer puts in place that day, and then sit in a dirty room with no air conditioning on uncomfortable furniture for hours. It is very unfun. Why do you do that when you don't have to? This isn't to focus on me. This is about the observation that people are drawn to use their gifts to serve others. That may seem obvious to you, but I don't know why it should be. I don't know why that should necessarily be the case. The more time I spent there, the very real sense of connection and duty and obligation to the incarcerated community became apparent to me, duty, obligation. If I as a Cravath partner with all the comforts that anyone could ask for found the need to be at the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. If a group of overworked Cravath Associates were drawn to do the same, rather than spending time doing what it takes to make partner at Cravath. And when we are there, feel a profound connection to the individuals who had lived experiences that were about as different from ours as they could possibly be. That is the presence of God. That's the definition of God. If a human being who suffered the worst atrocities a person can inflict on another and been victimized from the time that they were a young child and then been thrown in prison for the rest of their life, if they can have a deep connection with me, can speak with me in a rational and insightful way rather than curling up in the corner waiting to die, that's God. That's where I see God. If we could overcome everything that our social, economic, and political structures tell us about these incarcerated individuals and feel a deep inexplicable connection, that must be where God is. So that was a profound catalyst for deepening my recognition of what and where God is and how God operates. But that alone doesn't get you to give up a Cravath partnership to go to divinity school. Once I saw that powerful presence of God, sort of stage two of this journey was asking myself what I was supposed to do with it. There's this major push to identify what brings happiness. There's a whole class on this at Yale College, it's the most popular class in Yale's history. And why not? You've all heard the advice that we give our our young people to follow your passion. I personally don't believe that this is a helpful way to contemplate your life. I think the better question is one that derives from community. Rather than passion, which is a self-focused idea, I would prefer that we ask, where do I feel the most compelling duty in relation to serving a community. And by the way, that may change over time. When Jesus says, if you continue in my world, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free, he doesn't say the truth will make you happy. This isn't about our personal passion or happiness. It's about serving God's creation. It's about putting aside what we're taught is the most valuable thing, individual achievement, to recognize that I have a duty, a role to play for a community. That may be in business, maybe in law, maybe in medicine, it may be in politics, it may be in music, it may even be, God forbid, in investment banking. But I do think it helps to ask whether the pursuit is genuinely to serve a community. I came to the view that at least I, I won't speak for anyone else, I wasn't put on this earth to pursue happiness. Jesus doesn't preach happiness. Jesus preaches liberation. We think of liberation for the oppressed, the marginalized. And that is to be sure something that we can never become complacent about. But there's another way to think about liberation, which has nothing to do with socioeconomic status. It has to do with how much we live our lives bound by what we tell ourselves as the ways that we should measure the value of life. And if you're a lawyer who's reached the pinnacle of the profession with the ability to walk into any corporate boardroom in America and have immediate credibility, you hang on to that. You cling to that desperately You protect that status and that income with every ounce of energy that you have at all cost. But I began to see that I was shackled, not in the sense that I'd grown accustomed to a lifestyle, the golden handcuff thing, but in the sense that my way of measuring the value of life, of my life at least, had changed. I was bound by the earthly metrics that we use to measure our worth. All of the things that are so ingrained in us about what it means to live a life worthy of respect and admiration. And that was at the expense of living a profound life adventure and experiencing community with the rest of humanity. That was a big, big step. You can intellectualize that a lot but to internalize it as something else. And doing that was the first step to liberation, which was a necessary part of this. The next sort of stage was identifying opportunity and and the duty to seize it. I didn't just drop everything and go to divinity school. It's not like I just resigned one day from Cravath and said I'm going to divinity school. We have the opportunity at Cravath to retire early at 55, which I turned last month. I haven't amassed enormous wealth so that this is easy. Unlike many of my partners, most of my partners, I haven't spent my entire career at Cravath since I was in my early 30s as a partner. But early retirement from the partnership was available to me and Yale was 30, 40 minutes right up the road. And frankly, most important, my love, Peggy, and the captain of this life adventure that we have together was supportive. So this was an opportunity available to me, and I chose to see God's grace and providence in that. So having witnessed God, adopted the objective of liberation, and having opportunity, I saw no real choice in the matter. The call was compelling. And once you've witnessed the presence of God deeply enough in your soul that you can no longer push it away, once you sort of get the notion of liberation as Jesus teaches it, and once you have the opportunity, you discover that you don't have any choice. It becomes so obvious. It's out of your control. It's out of your hands. You can no longer live with yourself by not doing it. So I stepped off the hedonic treadmill. I had a duty, an obligation. It was as clear as anything ever has been. Now, there's one more thing I've got to say about community, and I'll go back to where I started this. And that has everything to do with you, my church family, my community. Without you, I wouldn't have done this. Now, you may rightly be saying, hey, don't blame us for this. <laughs> you hear a lot of people who deeply understand the human connection to the Spirit. There are the spiritual but not religious people, the folks who don't want to be associated with a painful experience that they may have had with a church, or they're fearful of the ways in which they might be perceived if they associate with a church, or people who just don't have the time for church. Those are the folks who, notwithstanding their deep appreciation for the beauty of the music and the art in the sanctuary, and the peace they derive from prayer, and the emotional support they need from church and religion and community when they're in pain or when they want to get married. They still forego the church out of fear. I get that. But you are here. Don't lose sight of the importance of your presence here. Don't discount that. Sometimes it may feel like you're here for yourselves only, but the impact of your presence to everyone around you and everyone up here, that's powerful, it's palpable. You have that ability. Because you're here, you've shown me and others the presence of God in community. The power and strength of this community is enormous. It propels us when we need encouragement. It challenges us when we think we have it all figured out. It supports us when we're celebrating life. It lifts us up when we need hope. And it heals us when we're in pain. If a community, a family of people can have that power, that is where God is. That is where God. I want to be that's where I need to be back to Romans we each have a function as members of this body of Christ that we all are we are members of one another see that live that be that thank you I am so grateful for you my church community my family in Christ for the opportunities you've given me, your presence in my life, and your presence in the lives of each other. Amen.